listening to next. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you're on social media, follow us on Twitter at 814next. If you're on social media on Facebook, like our page. Feel free to comment on both platforms. Lend your voice to the dialogue. For those listening on radio, thank you for tuning in. Uh, today we have a very special guest. In light of so much that's been going on in the media, uh, we had the tragic fire <clears throat> with the, the five children uh, passing not too long ago, uh, various things going on in our neighborhoods. Uh, the subject of trauma always comes to mind, and we want to unpack that in, in its totality later on in the show as we have on uh, our guest who we're introducing now and a guest coming on later. But our first guest, uh, Daryl, Brother D. Craig. First of all, Daryl, welcome to the show. Uh, Brother D is, this is a, um, first of all, a very good friend and mentor of mine. For someone who is not from Erie, I mean, I'm, I'm confident that you will and are going down in history as one of the champions of Erie, PA. And your fight for Erie and the soul of Erie is tireless. And you've been on a lot of different platforms, a lot of different shows. You're involved with a lot of different things. And I know you personally, I, I really want to take time to slow down and get to know you for who you are because I question how many people really know Brother D per se, or Daryl Craig versus Brother D. So thank you for coming on the show, and thank you for being willing to share with us today. No problem. All right. All right, so let's, let's start from the beginning. I wanna talk about, um, let's go back to Buffalo. I wanna, we can pull up, I wanna talk about this guy here on the screen. And we don't have, there it is. That's the guy I wanna talk about. Young Daryl Craig. <laughs> okay. Take me back there, man. Take, what's funny is, for those of you on radio, you can't see the photo, but it looks like a little tiny Daryl Craig. I mean, you still look the same, just with gray hair. <laughs> Tell us about those years. That was like a very, very special time in my life. If you look at this picture, that's my two little sisters and my baby brother, Kevin, that's Carolyn, and that's Shirley there. And at the time, um, that picture actually became a very important reminder for me as to why I do the work that I do. As you can see, I have my arms around them, and I remember posing for that picture, and my mom telling me, put your arms around them. And I was out at the mall, we had took some kids shopping and they weren't all our kids from back to school. And I took this picture standing behind all of these kids and it was about nine kids. And I had my arms stretched out around their shoulder just the same as in this picture. And I never even thought that that picture was actually preparation. You know what I'm saying? When I look at that picture, I, 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 I see that God was preparing me to be a caregiver back then. And so at that time in my life, it was actually a happy time in my life. Uh, we had a big family. Um, my parents, both my parents were doing quite well for us. Uh, economically, you know, things were starting to move for the, for the Craig family at that time. And it also happened to be right before all of that exploded. And, you know, uh, you mentioned the word trauma and probably the most traumatic event in my life ever uh, took place, and that was the disappearance of my mother. Um, you were about how old then? I was nine years old, okay. and as you can see in that picture, we looked very happy, very healthy, healthy, very much loved and cared for, it, you know, and um, wake up one morning and all that's gone. All of that disappears, mom is gone, uh, nobody knows where she's at. Um, my mother's relatives are saying that my father murdered my mother and they're looking for a body. And, and we're in a house, I'm in a household that I have four older brothers and an older sister who you don't see in this picture, right? And um, all of a sudden, that family unit is destroyed. That same morning, we woke up and discovered that my mother was missing. My older brothers and my older sister were taken out of the house and moved in with my mother's relatives. We were uh, not welcome because we were my father's biological children. 
and all the children that weren't uh, uh, his biological children were taken out of the house that same day. So all my protection, all my guidance uh, was just destroyed. I mean, it was like somebody dropped a bomb in our house, right? As I said, we were doing quite well at the time. We had two cars. Uh, we owned our own property. We had a boat. Uh, and um, we were one of the better kept homes in the city of Buffalo in that neighborhood. Uh, both parents working. And so to wake up, go to sleep at night with all of that, and then to wake up and find all of that gone mm -hmm. was probably the most traumatic thing that ever happened to me. Now, you have to realize that even today, I'm 63 years old. I never got an answer. There was never an answer to still, what happened to still me. Still a mystery. Still a mystery. Can I ask you this real quick, Brother D, leading up to that point, was, were there any, any indicators in your household that made you feel like there was instability, that there something was. could possibly be? Some things had uh, uh, risen um, late. Uh, um, right before that, I noticed that there, my mother and father had begun to argue a lot. Um, and I remember that had gotten physical a couple times. Um, my father had begun to drink, you know, uh, coming home uh, uh, high off alcohol. And I remember my mother attacking him. And so it was a lot of stuff going on. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing my mother having a conversation with one of my aunts about leaving. Uh, you know, getting away from all this and I'm going to send this one to his dad because she had been married three times and she had a plan what she was going to do with her children, right? And she was going to take off and I remember overhearing that conversation. So there was a lot mm -hmm. of things, indicators, but at my age, I mean, I couldn't process any of that. Um, never saw any of that really coming. Didn't think, you know, people grown up say stuff all the time when they're angry, you know what I mean? And grown-ups talk all, but I could never fathom in my heart or mind that, you know, my mother would actually, you know, leave her children or that our home would actually be uh, torn apart like that. It never was uh, um, something that I entertained, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? As I said, that conversation I overheard um, in passing, I don't know what I was doing in the house at the time, but I probably was trying to get outside the house and go back out and do what I did, play and uh, football or whatever was going on in the neighborhood at the time. And so when it happened, it helped lend itself to a lot of my personal confusion in that I knew that my mother had been having this discussion. And so while people were suspecting my dad, at the same time, I had this conversation that said it could have been also something else, you know? Mm -hmm. And so growing up like that helped shape and mold me into who I am today because as I processed and I began to embrace the healing process for that, I was able to recognize brokenness in children. And that's why I've always had a heart for the children. So this is helping me to connect the dots. In many ways let's see if we can build this roadmap from here from there to here because you touched on some of what I want to key in on and that's the fact that I look at how you work with the youth of our community to this very day and I feel like there's some comparisons and some in some of what you've shared with us but I want to walk this thing forward so let's take it from that time that you're looking at um, you come out of that situation, the children have been dispersed, mom is gone, you still don't know what happened. Right. I know at some point you end up incarcerated as a young person. Right. Walk us from that moment of trauma forward to whatever led to a lifestyle that where you landed up in bar, behind bars. Okay, so now you have me, nine years old, all of a sudden I go from being uh, this middle child who had, you know, all this protection as far as my older brothers and sisters, mother and father, and I'm thrust into a world where I don't have answers, but I gotta provide answers for those little ones you saw on that screen. Because as I told you, my father began to sink into this alcoholism and he became abusive and a lot of that was directed towards me. 
And so things started to disappear rapidly around the house, right? Uh, cars, boat. Uh, well, I look up one day and we're moving out of our house and wind up sleeping on somebody's couch upstairs over a, a bar, right? Uh, don't know how all this happened, didn't really understand why it was happening. So we're displaced now, we become displaced and we move into this strange neighborhood and at the time in the city of Buffalo, gang violence and gangs were on the uh, uprise. There were gangs in every neighborhood. So the neighborhood that we moved in happened to be the Fruit Belt section of Buffalo, New York. And the Fruit Belt section had about two or three gangs. And their level, the, the gangs in the Fruit Belt section was like uh, you had the older guys who would, would, would have been adults, then you had the older teenagers, and then you had the younger ones my age who would have been uh, identified as junior members of the gang that was predominant in that neighborhood was called the Mad Dogs. And so every day it was a fight. You're the new kids on the block, you're getting challenged, and you're gonna either stand up for yourself or you're gonna fold under the pressure and you're gonna be a victim every time you come out your house. Well, for the first couple of days or weeks, whatever happened, uh, whatever have you, um, we were victimized. I remember being robbed and um, getting my money taken on the way to the store and, and picked on. And um, I remember the moment, the exact moment when I decided to stand up for myself. And there was this uh, guy, he was a preacher's kid too. And every time he saw me coming, he would take my money. And I remember seeing him before he saw me one day. And I decided that was the day it was gonna stop. And um, I laid on in wait on him with a brick in my hand. And when he turned that corner, I made sure that he remembered me for the rest of his life. And from that day on, things began to change around the neighborhood, you know? And because gang activity is what was normal and what was common, uh, in my neighborhood, the gangs didn't refer to themselves as gangs. They referred to themselves as, as clubs. They paid dues. They had meetings. Uh, we threw parties. They did all this stuff. But at the, at the end of the day, we were still a gang. And so I remember one day my brother, my older brother, found his way back home and moved into our neighborhood. And I believe he did that one of my older brothers, so that he could kind of keep an eye on us. And he had an apartment uh, down the street. And so um, we wound up moving out of the Fruit Belt into some projects. And I guess that's what my father had been waiting on. But I decided that because he had become so abusive and, and you know, on one point you're telling me I'm the man of the house because I'm taking care of everything that you should be taking care of. And then the next thing I know, you're trying to put your hands on me. And from everything that you taught me that no man was supposed to stand there and let another man beat on him. So I made the decision that I was gonna leave. And that's what I did. And I went back to the fruit belt, which was what I was comfortable with. And I remember them having a, a, a free fall against the neighboring gang, which was the uh, Sycamore Matadors. Over in the schoolyard, right across the street from the apartment my brother had, and he was angry with me that day. And I remember, cause I had disappeared or something, didn't go to school or something. And he said, you think you're so tough? I'll tell you what, you go out there and let's see how tough you is. And I went and I never came back. And I went and I joined up with these fellas that was in my neighborhood, they were my friends. I did what they did every day. And because it was gang activity and because it was a uh, always a feeling that we were trying to survive, you know what I mean? We did a lot of stealing and robbing and we did whatever we could do to get a dollar, you know? Let me interject for two seconds. This was fascinating because obviously you and I do a lot of things in community together. And if you are listening or watching this, I really want you to wrestle with the idea of this story, well, we could replace your name with the names of dozens of young men in this city. Yes, right now. That you've done work with. Yes. And so often there's this narrative, and you've been the champion, one of the many champions of this narrative time and time again, that despite a person's current circumstances, there's a champion inside of that person.
person, there's mm -hmm. potential inside of that person, there's greatness inside of that person, if only it is given the proper circumstances and environment to flourish in. And so again, if you're listening or if you're watching and you have respect for Brother D's work, for Brother D as a man, and I know that you all do, I want you to really pay attention to what you're hearing because it's the same person mm -hmm. under different circumstances. Yep. Exactly. And, and that's what it was. I identified with all those guys that was across the street in, in, the, in the middle of that brawl. There were so many similar circumstances and, and uh, uh, life experiences that were connected to me. And these guys knew exactly uh, uh, what I felt. These guys knew exactly what I was experiencing because some of them were was experiencing it themselves. Maybe there was a few different twists and a few different dynamics. Maybe mom didn't disappear under that type of a cloud, but mom might have been gone in the fact that mom was an alcoholic. Mom was strung out on drugs, you know what I mean? Or they were staying, being raised by a grandmother or, you know, and, and it was just so much uh, in, those, in those neighborhoods at that time. Uh, not too much different from now, unfortunately, where you have a bunch of children who are growing up under some of the most um, traumatic circumstances you can imagine. I tell people all the time, you know, we do a lot of work with the Erie School District, and um, I tell teachers and administrators all the time, you think you're talking to a nine-year-old, you think you're talking to a 10-year-old, but sometimes you need to just pause and really look at what you're seeing. This kid comes up every morning and he's dragging two or three siblings. You don't know what his reality is. You don't know what their morning was like. You don't know if mom was there or not. You don't know if he struggled to feed them or not. You don't know what he had to do to get them dressed this morning. And then you come to him about maybe his shirt is buttoned the wrong way or he doesn't have on a school uniform and that's the least of his worries. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you took some time and tried to learn about him, you'd find out you're really not talking to a 10 year old. Mm -hmm. You're talking to somebody in a 10 year old body but he's having some grown up experiences mm -hmm. and probably is one of the most resourceful kids in your classroom and if you could tap into that, tap into that, you could probably help him overcome some of the difficulties at home, but also become one of the best educated students that you got because he's definitely resourceful enough to survive his reality. So if we can use this same resourcefulness to help him to learn, you could produce some greatness without him having to go any further down the road to get that, to acquire that. Once again, you're giving a teacher the same conversation someone could have given your teacher about nine, 10, 11 year old Daryl Craig. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue. I remember uh, the school did something to me that I would never ever forget and I never forgave them for. After my, the disappearance of my mother, I, I didn't get a chance to tell you this, they sent the guy in the room to come to my desk to talk to me. Come to find out this guy was a reporter. Nobody ever told me this was a reporter. I'm thinking this guy is here to help me understand what's happening yeah. in my home. And he said, I want to ask you some questions about your mother. And I actually felt relieved. And this guy went and took his story and ran to the newspaper, right. read it. And so- You uh, thought someone was trying to help you yeah, walk through this. Yeah. And they and, were exploiting and, your and situation. all he was doing was exploiting my situation and exposing me. And so now, everywhere I go, I'm getting these questions about my mother. And it's embarrassing. It's, you know, I don't know how to feel about this. So uh, oftentimes, um, instead of looking at the kid, and doing something to help, we wind up, uh, I think they call it re-traumatizing the kids by either misunderstanding the kid and, and, and assuming wrongly that the way he's acting is because he has a contrary attitude or, or he's just a, 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 a wise, uh, 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 you know, I won't say that word, <laughs> but you, you get what I'm saying. And so the kid, instead of getting the help and the empathy and the understanding that would, you know, just go so far with him at that time, this kid winds up becoming bitter, resentful. He's already not trusting because the adults that's in his life 
has already let him down and, 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 and hurt him badly by letting him down like that. And so here's another adult that comes in the role of a caregiver or somebody that's supposed to be there to help and they wind up doing more damage. Mm. Fascinating segment. You're listening to Marcus Atkinson on Next on WQLN. Uh, we're talking to Daryl Craig live in studio, Brother D. And Brother D's been unpacking his background as a child and just some of the experiences that helped shape who he is today. Uh, fascinating segment. What I want to do is just go through another photo or two and just get like a very condensed statement on how each one of these segments of your um, life impacts your work. This is Daryl, this is Brother D, the pastor, praying us in for a session at Sir Avery. Talk to us about your pastoral work and how that plays into everything that you're doing now. Uh, this was everything that brought everything together. My relationship with God, my faith, is what really brought everything together for me, as you said, use that word condensed, it condensed everything. And I firmly believe that everything that I've been through in my childhood was training for what you see me doing today. And I would not change, believe it or not, I would not change one day, not one horrible experience, not one iota of pain that I've experienced. I wouldn't change it now for anything in the world because I believe everyone in my life and everything in my life is perfect for my life. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Some people may not realize just how much joy and fulfillment you get from sharing the gospel. You know, I've had the privilege of watching you share the gospel on, on several occasions. If you can just, you know, talk real quick about how it makes you feel because you can see it coming out of you when you are sharing from the word of God. It, it, it gives you a sense of completeness because when you're sharing the gospel, for me, it's the one thing I know that I'm doing that is absolutely right, that's perfect. There's no doubt in it, no, no, uh, I, am I doing the right thing? Is this uh, uh, worth it? It, it, it's, you, I mean, oh my God, it, you're talking about rewarding and fulfilling. Oh, and then to see hope in other people's faces and to be able to impart a word that might encourage or edify another human being who's going through Lord knows what, even if it's just the uh, wondering what their purpose is or kind of lost in this whole thing that we call life, to be able to impart a word to that individual is 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 priceless the next photo is the photo that we know you most people know you for best your role yeah. as a blue coat yeah. and i think in that first segment you've given us a much deeper appreciation for this role this is not some occupation mm -hmm. this is not a job this is specifically a calling talk about this role these are our kids I tell you what, I was homeless at the age of 15 after, you know, moving in with my brother. I was told you about he disappeared for about six months. And I remember this woman, she had about nine or 10 kids, Mildred Premis. She was a community activist, took me in. And I asked her why she was so good to me and so nice to, to me. And she had all these kids and she looked me right in my eyes and she told me that the world was responsible for children. And I believe that. And so when I see children, I know that we are responsible. We give them the world that they're born into. They inherit our mess or our success. And we're responsible to make sure they survive it. Mm -hmm. This next role is a role that has been increasingly a larger part of your profile. You as the school advocate. So when you think about the, the, Erie, the Erie School District, I mean, your name and your face is almost as synonymous as the superintendents these days. How did you fall into this role and did you see your profile or your role with this growing so big? Did you see all of this coming? Never saw it coming. Never in, a, in my wildest dreams did I even imagine anything like this happening. But my mother, the, the, what I do remember about her and my father both, they were big on education, and we were always taught to, to know that the answer to everything is in education. And that, you know, without an education, 
you really don't have too much of a chance. And so being allowed to be a part of what our school district is doing. My kids are in the school district. My grandkids are in the school district. My nieces and nephews are in the school district. And so I believe that all of us, anybody who, who, who is concerned about children and the development and the well-being of children should be behind our schools. 100%, and I don't get it when I see that that's not happening. It just, it, it, it just frustrates me and it just blows my mind that we uh, would even have to uh, ask for support from any area. It says Erie's public schools, meaning that everybody's child is, first of all, welcome and that the public at large is in that building. So the public at large is responsible for that building. Mm -hmm. And lastly, the role of MVP most, well not necessarily lastly, MVP most valuable parent. So this makes perfect sense because just watching this, this journey that you've been on, working with the children, uh, being shaped by a lot of the experiences with your own parents. This MVP program, Mothers, Violence, Peace, Most Valuable Parents of Erie PA. Talk about this shift to parents a little bit. Well, parents hold the answer for most kids. Uh, a lot of what kids are experiencing is a result of what parents are either doing or not doing. But I also believe that our parents need to be encouraged and that a lot of parents are so worn out from different life challenges that they sometimes forget their value in the equation. And MVP is our parent engagement initiative where we want to empower the parent and also encourage the parent to take back their role take their role back in society and begin to speak out rightfully about their children. I mean, you have so many people that speak for, for the parents, speak about the parents, but they don't even speak to the parents. That's interesting point. Making interesting decisions point. on these parents' behalf. kids mm -hmm. and on their behalf. And so MVP is a platform for parents to come and have support, and to have access to different uh, uh, doors that they wouldn't normally be able to walk through. Whatever connections that we have, whatever assets we have, resources that we have, uh, just our ability to reach out into the community without standing in line maybe, as some folks might be, without having to be on hold. Well, these parents should have that same access. Mm -hmm. And so through MVP, we want to, to give these parents that platform that their voice will be heard and that it comes with immediate support because underneath this whole logo, you see that blue. I like that. That blue is representing the Blue Coats CCC, which is our 501, and that blue stands that we support parents. Mm. And lastly, as we segue into the next segment shortly, um, Prevention, you know, your walk down exactly. the road of prevention, unified area. This photo, you know, I, I look at for myself, there are certain benchmarks in time where mm -hmm. I say there's there's a period in my life where the journey took a turn, mm -hmm. you know, and normally sometimes the journey takes a turn. Sometimes it takes a turn upward, more responsibility. This is one of those moments in time. You know, this is when I first met Mike Outlaw mm -hmm. through this. Um, you see myself there, yourself, Curtis, Curtis Jones. So much came from this. Talk about Unified Erie, how you got brought into this, the role that it's played, and then we'll segue in and bring in Amy Blackman from the CBC. Well, how I got involved with Unified Erie is uh, there was a young woman that was shot. Uh, we were on our way to Bible study one Wednesday evening, and a young woman got shot in her neck about two blocks from the church. And she got shot as a result of being around somebody who was being shot at, right? And there was this call that went out like we do whenever something happened, it was a reaction. Somebody called for this emergency meeting 
to stop the violence over at the uh, uh, multicultural church next to the multicultural center. And I came into that basement, and there were about 70 people in there. And it just seemed to me that those 70 people were saying the same 70 things they said at the last emergency meeting as a reaction to some shooting or some horrific incident in our community. But there was one guy in there in particular who said something that was different. And that was this young gentleman right here, Marshall Piccinini. And he said something about people being tired of funding programs just because you had a program, that it was time to start doing research and finding best practices and really looking into a thing and seeing what the impact could be based on data, which is the facts based on truth is what it said to me. Mm -hmm. And so he started talking about this unified eerie and for me, it made sense because, you know, the scripture tells us how sweet and pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. I'm quoting Psalms 133. And in that Bible verse, you see later on, I think it's verse 6, where it says, There the Lord has commanded a blessing. And so Psalms 133 says that whenever we're unified, God commands a blessing. And you never see that language anywhere else in the Bible where a blessing was commanded. And it tells me that in unity, we cannot lose. And so I wanted to hear more about it. And as they began to unpack some of their strategies that they were uh, trying to employ and that they had researched, uh, one was the, uh, the, uh, the call-in call and the reentry strategy, right, which all made sense to me. And I always hoped and still have hope that if we could ever come together across our egos, across our differences, for the right reason and do the right thing, that we could successfully heal our community. And this was the only thing and the first thing to me that actually offered that because nobody's in charge. It's a collaboration. It's everybody. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has input. No one person is right. Unified Erie was a concept. It was a thought process. It was an ideal. It was not another program. Mm -hmm. And so it just made sense. And if you remember, before we went to Kansas, while we were in Kansas to research their call-in, I told everybody that would listen, if we do one call-in in the city of Erie, It'll break that gang mentality and it'll cut down on all these random shootings. And I don't think that I have to say anything more after that, except for I would invite our listeners, listeners to stop and think when's the last time they heard of a gang-related homicide in the city of Erie. And so this is a perfect segue. Uh, you're listening to Marcus Atkinson on Next with, on WQLN. Um, we're talking to Daryl Craig, Brother D. Live in studio, we're talking about various topics, everything from his role with the Blue Coats, uh, his role as a pastor. Um, Unified Area is the last thing that we left off on. Unified Area being one of the more higher profile prevention programs dealing with crimes and victims, so I think it's appropriate that we bring in the, um, the Director of Prevention Education at the Crime Victim Center. So we wanna bring on Amy Blackman. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. So Amy, we are talking about prevention, um, we touched on trauma, but we wanna go deeper. First, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what your role is in community. Well, um, myself or the agency? Both. Okay, so myself, I am a, about 20 year now implant to the area, and I've been with the Crime Victim Center since 2000. And I'm now the Director of Prevention Education. So I've been working in the community education and prevention realm since pretty much day one there. Um, and the agency itself, it, that's our role, is to really respond when things happen, but also look at what can we do to change those things, to reduce the impact of what's happening, to stop some of the things from starting in the first place. So. Um, in that 20 years, I've seen a, a big shift in change. It used to be we would really be looking at how do we just spread awareness and, and what do we do to respond to something to now we're looking at how do we 
truly get to some of the roots of the causes? How do we help the community educate themselves and to move forward so that we're starting to change that cycle that was happening? Let's clear up a few misconceptions about the CVC while we're here. When people hear Crime Victim Center, I think they often think about things like violent crimes, rapes, these horrific crimes in society. Tell us just what type of, of crimes that you offer services for. Truly anything that qualifies as a crime. So we have folks who come in to look for services that perhaps their property was damaged. So it's something that might seem really basic, but yet that's created a big impact on them, their life, how they're feeling safe or unsafe in their community. So the evening um, that all the car windows were shot out, absolutely. those victims can call the CVC. Yes, I'm yes. sorry, go ahead. Um, so even, yeah, property damage. Um, we have folks that we work with who have had their identities stolen online. So we're looking at even internet crimes and cyber crimes all the way up through the spectrum. So truly, it's any anything that has impacted someone. And the services that are available, um, we offer counseling so somebody can talk about and process through, even if they never reported it to the police. It didn't have to have gone into the criminal justice system for it to still have made an impact in their life. So somebody can still come to us 20, 30 years later and having never reported anything and talk about how their life has been impacted and affected. Um, but we also, if it is going through the criminal justice system, help them to navigate that system, to understand what it's going to be like, how it's going to work, um, or sometimes how it might not work as well as we'd hope it would work. We help them to know when things change in that system, when something's scheduled and then gets continued and continued and continued. We help to kind of be there to help offer that support and to let them know when things are, are coming up. So you can hear Brother D saying that one of the things that attracted him to Unified Area was the fact that he heard a, a proactive strategy being touted as opposed to constantly reacting to these things that are happening in society. As the Prevention Education Director, tell us about the importance of prevention in society. It's tremendously important. And as Brother D said, you know, the community is responsible for our children. The world is responsible for our children. If we aren't looking at how do we create resiliency in our community, how do we talk with children about respect and understanding other people and empathy for other people, then we're just going to continue a cycle of people harming other people. Um, so we really are looking at how can we get to some of those root causes. Um, you know, in our programming, we are still doing some of the awareness raising basic programming, but we're also reaching out. We're doing uh, sexual abuse prevention programs with parents. We're doing programming on boundaries with kids, talking about trauma and how does this impact and affect people, and really helping uh, professionals understand their roles as mandated reporters when something is coming up and seeing how they can ask questions like what's happening and what has happened instead of blaming the child for their actions that something's wrong with them or that things, um, you know, something strange is going on within themselves instead of looking at their environment and what they're dealing with. So in the lobby, we started an interesting conversation on in this day and age, it seems to be a, a redefining movement of the word trauma. And in the past, you would hear that word, and I think there was a certain stigma attached to it or it was a very narrow definition attached to it. Let's start with Brother D. Talk about the evolution of that word and the way society is being uh, educated on what that truly means in 2019. Well, as we were saying in the lobby, first of all, it, it was very, I'm very grateful that that is a topic now and that you can hear more about trauma and people are starting to look at trauma uh, uh, a little deeper and, and, and apply uh, uh, strategies to uh, deal with trauma because we always thought of trauma as something that hits you like a shock, you know what I mean? As you said, something very horrific or somebody getting shot, somebody dies, a uh, car crash, you know, traumatic. Uh, but as we begin to um, start to discuss trauma more, now we see that uh, living in impoverished conditions where you don't see a lot of so-called shock, 
but that a person that goes hungry long enough can be traumatized by, you know, having lack in their lives. And um, I didn't know that until I started having those discussions with people like uh, the Crime Victim Center. And we started collaborating with them to deal with the trauma of our kids up in the neighborhood around McKinley. And so it's a big change. It's a big change. I know that uh, most caregivers are now uh, um, uh, required to have the trauma-informed uh, training, uh, and, and that's a required background for a lot of people that deal with, our, uh, that uh, um, provide services to children. And so that's been a, a big change in society itself because it tells me that the caregivers are now better equipped to understand the client. And so without this trauma-informed care training, a lot of times we're trying to uh, provide care to people, but we don't have the understanding that's necessary to give them what they really need. We're, we're putting Band-Aids on gunshots because we haven't done the uh, necessary research or looked into the situation deep enough to find out that we're dealing with a traumatized person and because the things that's traumatized them is outside of what we normally think of trauma. So we didn't think they were traumatized, but come to find out they are. Now we know better. Amy, trauma, put that in perspective for our listeners and our viewers. So I was just talking with uh, middle school and high schoolers about this topic yesterday, so it worked really well. Trauma really, it, it's something that changes our ability to deal with day-to-day -day normal workings. It interrupts our thinking process, it interrupts our ability to relate to other people and make sense of what's going on and what's happening. That can be something to, that might seem like fairly small and insignificant, but when it starts building on all of the past experiences that we've had, that can be something very small happening, but yet it brings all of that together. So it can be something minimal like a property damage sort of thing where maybe that wasn't the first thing that happened to this person, mm -hmm. but that was kind of the last thing that made it suddenly not feel safe any longer. It made it harder to interact with their neighbors in their neighborhood because they don't feel like they can trust that person. So trauma can have a look of all sorts. Uh, it really is just something that's causing a person to have a difficult time processing their normal day-to-day -day life. And that can be something that um, can be overcome in a short time, or that can be something that's sticking with them for years and years to come. Let's talk specifically about gun violence. You brought up McKinley Elementary, and we had one instance where you had the employee shot at the door, at the door of McKinley Elementary. You had another instance where in the Summer Parks program right there across the street from McKinley, there was a shooting in broad daylight about 50 in kids. front of about 50 kids. Mm -hmm. The sanctity of our children has been violated on so many levels with this gun violence. And what frustrates so many is that, you know, you, you, you are leaving a trail of broken or shattered children with all of the violence that they see, all the violence that they have direct access to. Growing up in Erie, this is a narrative that I personally thought we would never see. Mm -hmm. That this would be, there will be even some sense of normalcy to shootings and gun violence and things along those lines. But the children in this specific area are being traumatized. Talk about that because I know that that is one thing in particular, Brother D, that gives you a great deal of righteous indignation. Most definitely. You know, it, that, that what you just pointed out about, we never saw these days coming in Erie, is exactly what called for the, the creation of the uh, Blue Coast. We, you know the story, our, our, we started out as the Erie Nonviolence Initiative and the kids gave us the nickname Blue Coast because of our uniforms. But we saw, you could see it building, you could see that all the conditions were coming into play that was going to create an atmosphere like some of the bigger cities, the Clevelands, the Buffaloes, the Chicagos even. And so we wanted to warn everybody by raising awareness about this gun violence being on the rise. Now McKinley just so happens to sit in a neighborhood where 
time after time after time, I believe if we had somebody from law enforcement here to uh, uh, give us some of the data for that neighborhood, and I'm talking about maybe from French Street back to East Avenue, from probably as up as far as 32nd down to 19th Street, maybe even uh, uh, 12th Street, is you probably had the most amount of shots fired, shootings, homicide, drugs than any other area in the city, right? Surrounding it. Now in McKinley, right outside the doors on all sides, you can name a shooting that took place. And for a while, it seemed like every month or every two, three weeks, there was a shooting taking place at the exact same time that our kids were being dismissed from that school, which is why we put out the call for trauma awareness and we were having the trauma rallies, which we uh, collaborated with uh, CBC because uh, um, they had the expertise on it. And so one of the things they would ask me to do, the Erie School District, after any time there will be one of these events, they would always ask that we would monitor a little further away from the school the next day just in case there might be some type of retaliation that we would be able to provide safe passage for parents and the children that were coming to school in that morning. And one of the things that we always noticed that the children and the parents seemed numb. They seemed like they had not been affected by these horrific events as we watched them walk past the murder scene, as we watched them walk past the yellow tape that was up for the shooting at, that took place the day before at 25th and Perry. You know, the kids were still laughing and playing and the parents were just going about their business as if though this was normal. And I knew in my heart this could not be normal for them and these were people who had been so severely impacted and traumatized that they had, as you said, began to find ways to cope with it and make it normal. Perfect segue. You you actually offer something to children and parents for things along these lines. Can you talk about that, please, Amy? Yeah, we do. We offer uh, counseling for anybody who's being impacted by these. So we're working with the children and the parents to talk about what's happened to process that feeling of feeling numb to things and then coming back to it even at at a later point in time. Um, One of our new initiatives for the school year is we have a counselor who's going to be working in the community schools and so she's going to be able to be there in the school setting Mm. to talk with the kids who maybe they aren't coming to the agency on West 18th Street but they're able to talk with that counselor right there in the school setting. Or if the parents, if they don't feel comfortable coming into the organization or into the agency, we go out into the community into safe spaces for us, such as the schools, to be able to talk with them and and look at the impacts. And what we often find is at that initial moment of any sort of crime or anything that's happening, people do tend to be kind of numb and go into a shock moment and their brains are just trying to figure out how do I get through the day and not have to experience this again or not Mm -hmm. think about this again. And what normally happens is at some point, the body starts feeling safe again Mm -hmm. and that body starts having memories and it starts having impact from that. It starts having nightmares, it starts having flashbacks. And if we just keep stuffing it away, we become more and more numb. So once those moments of everything starting to come up start happening, that's the point where we need to be talking and we need to be working through and processing and looking at how do we um, make sure that we feel these emotions and deal with the issue. And the more we feel kind of righteous that this shouldn't be happening, the more we're going to look at how do we change that? How do we talk with our kids? And that's one of uh, the parenting programs that we have have done in the past is talking with parents of how do you talk to your children about these things? How do you work through? Um, We have had support groups for those who've lost somebody to homicide. We have an adult group that works on healing that comes just from any form of trauma that's happened to them in their childhood along the line of abuse or crimes that have occurred. Can I ask you a clinical question? When you think about post-traumatic stress syndrome, you think about the military. We think about our veterans. From a community standpoint, 
How does that, if, if at all, come into play when we talk about things such as this? We're seeing it. Uh, we see it in our communities. It's not just the military. It's people who are living through issues of violence on a day-to-day -day basis. So it is that, you know, hearing gunshots in the neighborhood and having that become a sense of normal. It's the having constant conflict between parents or moms and dads and their significant others in the household. It's simply figuring out how does my body work to cope and deal with what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. And then when everything finally becomes what we might call normal or that's not dealing with all of those things, not having the methods to be able to handle that sort of feeling. Just like a military person who's coming back from a war zone mm -hmm. who has been adjusting to that war zone and dealing with that all the time and comes back to civilian life and doesn't know what to do. Our kids get in that same setting, in that same mode at times. Let's talk about potential perpetrators. You have a program that has been very successful, the flip side. And I, I know you take your vet Jennings with you. We, we had our sister on the show before. She's dealt with trauma herself. She is utilizing that as a gift to community and trying to help save other people's children. Tell us very quickly, what is the flip side? And give us an example of when you saw, aha, there's something to this, this is working. Um, the flip side is a gun violence prevention uh, initiative, but it's also, um, definitely uh, educational tool that we use to enlighten uh, our youth about uh, the trauma associated with gun violence because one of the things I think it came from uh, for me a result of uh, somebody calling me one day and say saw a young man involved in the shootout and said a young man fired off about nine shots down on third street but the young man was running away with the pistol pointed over his shoulder firing blindly, randomly. just randomly shooting, and he shot off nine shots, and there was not a report about anybody being hit or anything being hit, and we were wondering, where did the nine bullets go, you know? And so when Temple University has this Cradle to the Grave program, which is what the flip side is modeled after, there was talk in the community with UPMC about bringing that program here, and somebody had submitted my name as a likely candidate for facilitator, and I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. I had so much other stuff going on, I just didn't need another hat. And I wound up going to a presentation of the Cradle to the Grave, and, um, seeing how impactful it was with that group of kids that we had that day. I believe the probation department had provided a, a, some, some uh, youth. And talking to the youth afterwards, uh, I knew that um, it was something that could probably be useful in our toolbox up here in Erie. And so we developed our own diver um, version of it called the flip side. And there was a moment when we did a group and we had some uh, young men in the group uh, who were so-called hardcore. And at the end of the group, like I think it was our first, our second or third version of the flip side, like five out of the seven young men in the group all wanted to use a telephone. And we heard them making these phone calls and apologizing and telling their parents or their grandmother, whoever they were talking to, that they were sorry. And for me, it was that, yeah, this will work. Because if it did nothing but make them think we had started the process of having them reconsider these dangerous activities that they were involved in. And anytime you can cause a person to do that, then you have a chance of changing that. And so it, it, was, it was going right to the heart of some of these children. And that's what we must do. We must get to their hearts and, and, and cause something healthy to start to germinate in the heart because a lot of the kids' hearts have waxed cold and, and hard because of the conditions that they're, you know, being birthed into and raised in. And um, 
I mean, time in and time after, uh, uh, again, I, I just see where the hardest guy in the group will come in, and he's so tough. He is so tough when he walks in that hospital. And by the time we get ready to leave that trauma bay, this kid needs a drink of water, he needs to sit down, he's dizzy, uh, can I call my mom, you know? And I'm looking at him, and now you see what's really there, just a little boy. There's a song by Tupac Shakur, and in one of those verses, he says he was talking about being in jail. He said, even the hardest of my homies need attention. Catch him blowing up the telephone, reminiscing. Mm -hmm. It's in there with yes. all of them. Yes. Something has to bring it out. Exactly. Amy, as we go towards the finish line here, the fire recently, I don't think I've seen an event break the hearts of Erie, Erie County, the country. I've, I haven't seen in a long time this many people affected by something. Um, what, what, what have you seen in terms of processing grief, trauma, things along those lines? And how many degrees of separation do you have to be from a situation to take advantage of services? Because I see people who are no connection personally at all with this fire. Mm -hmm. Like my wife could not stop crying that whole day and there were countless others. Speak to that situation, please. Now that situation, um as of this moment, is still accidental. So it wouldn't completely fall into our services because it's not yet a criminal case. Um, I don't know if it will go there. But in any case where we are seeing these impacts, um, truly if someone's being affected by a crime because of something that's happened, whether it's a homicide, whether it's an assault, whether it's something in the community, um, there's really not a limitation to how far out in the line of connection do they have to be? Anybody's being impacted, uh, and those are things that need to be processed and need to be talked about so that they can really look at how can I help, what can I do? And I think that's where the community is really rallying is the fact that you, know, you have young mothers who are very strongly standing up and coming forward and talking about the situation but in a positive light. There's not blame. There's not a negative side to this. It's, you know, this happened. It was horrific. It was tragic. And we all feel that inside. We feel that tragedy and talking about how do we feel about it? How can we help? What can we do? And that's the sort of connection that we need is how do we keep our community connected and keep looking at how can we help each other? And yes, we're an agency, we provide that counseling, we provide that walk through the court system, the help to understand. But if that person goes home at the end of the day and doesn't have anyone to talk to or to have a support for, that trauma is gonna continue with them. So it's building up our community and bringing the supports that we all have and bringing them out into the open to really say, look, you've got people here, you've got others to lean on, to talk to, to work through. One of the things that we do with clients in counseling is look at who your support system is. How do you handle the evenings, the nights, when there isn't a counselor sitting across from you? Who do you talk to? What can you do? How can you reach out? And just encouraging people to continue to reach out. Um, in a month from now, things won't be quite so hurting. Things won't be quite so in our faces of this tragedy. Unless we drive past that home, it's not gonna be part of our daily life. It's not gonna be on the news constantly, but we're still gonna have hurt. Mm -hmm. And so we still need to acknowledge that those things that happen continue beyond and it's still okay to reach out, even if it's months later, even if it's a year later, mm -hmm. we still have supports that we can really truly build each other up instead of tearing us down. Along those lines, Reverend, thank you for being on the show. Reverend Mock said at the funeral, that these children posthumously have brought us together as a community and we need to stay together and make that our resolve going forward. Uh, Brother D, thank you for coming on the show. Amy Blackman, thank you so much for coming on the show. I wanna thank the show's sponsors, Infinity Resources, the Erie County DA's office and Robert Benjamin Wiley Charter School. My name is Marcus Atkinson. I wanna thank you for tuning in to Next on WQLM. Join us next month as we explore another timely topic with local guests. For Radio Tune In to 91.3 on the fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. 
for next on WQLN Radio and, and, and podcasts. I'm Marcus Atkinson, and we will see you all next time. Thank you.